Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and concerns around mental health are a big issue in our society at large and on college campuses. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among college students, and national data indicates that the problem is not unique. About 1 in 12 students has a suicide plan. That's according to the National College Health Assessment. I'm speaking about some of the approaches to dealing with mental health on campus with Barry Schreier from the University of Iowa. He's Communications Committee chair at the Association of University and College Counseling Center Directors. Barry, thank you for speaking with us. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. From the perspective of someone giving care to students, what kind of stressors are we seeing in kids? So for this year, um, as it is with every year, anxiety is, is the highest ranking reason why students are coming in for counseling, followed quickly by depression. And when we say anxiety, we're not talking about nervous about my test tomorrow. We're talking typically about longer standing, perhaps more chronic anxi- diagnosable anxiety. And depression, not meaning like having a down day, but again, probably longer standing, more chronic uh, diagnosable depression. And those two diagnoses account for over half of the reasons why students come to the counseling services. Well, a lot of people who listen could be thinking, oh, you know, I pulled all-nighters in college, you know, this this is a stressful time. So are students really more stressed out than ever before? Have you seen a jump? We have seen a jump. Factors such as uh, previous counseling, um, thoughts of harm to self, suicidal ideation, all have continued to, to grow in terms of uh, students presenting for counseling at campuses. All those um, indices have continued to grow over the last four to five years. And so we are seeing an increase in those presenting concerns. It leads to the question of, like, why is this going on? Mm-hmm. Like, are, are students more mentally ill than they ever have been before? And the research is not clear on that. So we can't clearly state we look at these factors, these factors are clearly leading to the fact that students are more mentally ill. What we are aware of is two critical factors. One is that students are certainly more distressed. They, they certainly present with much more levels of distress. And whether that translates into diagnosable mental illness is not entirely clear. But students clearly are presenting with much higher levels of distress than they have ever had. And some of the speculation about why that might be is, one, they are a generation that is exposed to, to, to everything all the time, everywhere. And so when I was a college student, you know, and I was pulling my all-nighters, I wasn't exposed to everything going on in the world all the time. I, I got 30 minutes of news a day, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And these students are exposed to everything, everywhere, all the time. That's combined with one of the things we know about this generation is it's not a generation that regulates its own emotions very well. They have a lot of strengths. It's a very strong generation. But one of the strengths that this generation doesn't have is self-regulation. So that combined with a lot of distressful exposure can create the presence of anxiety, depression, etc. Mm-hmm. And what is, the, what is the connection between those mitigating or temporary or even sustained events of anxiety and depression and larger mental health issues and concerns? What we know is this, is that the self-reported lifetime prevalence of threat of self, 
so this is non-suicidal self-injury, um, is up for four years in a row. Mm. And so the presence of ongoing anxiety and depression has critical outcomes for our students in terms of self-harm ideation and including also thoughts of th- and threats to others. Right. And uh, suicide is the second leading cause of death among college students. I want to yeah. talk about threats to others because we do talk a lot about, you know, anxiety and depression manifesting. But there are bigger, you know, uh, we do know some high-profile cases of psychoses and violent sociopathic behavior. I think of Virginia Tech, Santa Monica, mass shootings come to mind. How do you consider those cases and identifying potential perpetrators when it comes to mental health on campus? You know, that's a really critical question, and it's, it's outside my area of expertise. There are folks on every single campus anymore these days who make their expertise area in the idea of threat assessment and threat management. What they will say broadly is that mental health and diagnosable mental illness is not necessarily an indicator of threat of harm to others. Mm -hmm. In fact, typically people who have diagnosable mental illness are unequivocally much more the victims of violence than they're ever going to be the perpetrators of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if we have have 10 students with long-term chronic depression, while one of those students might act out and do engage in violence acts, nine of them won't. Are there any models in the system of innovations on taking care of mental illness or at least monitoring it, you know, involving RAs, involving educators in helping to identify kids who might have trouble? So campuses are being exceedingly proactive in terms of responding to the prevalence of mental health concerns. So in the survey this past year from the Association of University and College Counseling Centers, we asked, at your center, have you gained staff? And so last year, 35% of centers surveyed said that they gained staff positions. And on average, it was almost eight staff positions. Mm-hmm. So counseling centers and campuses are really beefing up in, a lot, in sort of ways we've not ever seen historically in adding staff to their counseling centers to meet the demand. So that's one thing counseling centers are doing and campuses are doing. The other thing that we're seeing proliferate, which is really very creative, is what we call our embedded models. Mm-hmm. And these are models where... People are, uh, mental health professionals are being hired by the counseling center and being placed in other areas of campus outside of the counseling service. And so you might see staff uh, therapists in the residence halls, and that's permanently where they are is in a residence hall, serving residence hall students. Uh, Again, it's a proliferating model. We asked members of our association last year, how many of you are doing this? And one in, at this juncture, one in 10 campus, over one in 10 campuses had embedded positions. And five years ago, there weren't any. Um, And so we're seeing a huge proliferation, and it can include places like residence halls, athletics, uh, professional or graduate colleges, et cetera, et cetera. And so we are seeing a proliferation of that, and it's it's to increase accessibility to serve typically underserved populations and to provide specialized services to our campus, like in sports psychology. So that is bringing help to where the students are interacting. But we've also seen dramatic increase in depression among college students being reported, including one study that shows 40 percent of students say they feel depressed. That's up 8 percent from a few years ago. But also reporting that the percentage of students thinking about and actually attempting suicide have gone up. Do you think looking at the system as a whole, are students just reporting the need for help more or is it really a dramatically worsening problem? It's a outstanding question and one we're still working to figure out. Um, and you lay your finger on two of the critical issues. Is One, is this just something that it's up overall? Is it the way we're asking the questions of students? 
Um, and is it just perhaps we're suffering the problems of our success, which is we've done such a good job reducing stigma and normalizing the seeking of mental health services that we're just seeing a larger influx of students overall seeking and reporting these things. Hard to know just yet, but we do know it's up and we're trying to figure out why that is. What about the phenomenon of copycat events? Can these events trigger that? Yeah, so one of the phenomenons we're aware of is what we call contagion, suicide contagion. Um, And it's not unusual for us to see a suicide on a campus and then see a second and even a third, sometimes a fourth or more, depending on the campus and the situation. So yes, contagion is a critical concern for campuses when we sadly and unfortunately sustain a suicide on our campus. Mm, You mentioned earlier that this is a generation of kids who have great strengths, but also carry a lot of distress in their life growing up, they've got information coming at them from all kinds of different directions. This is also a time of unsupervised behavior. Traditionally, when you get to college, uh, alcohol use, drug use, both prescribed and off-label, and the phenomenon on college campuses, especially of using Adderall and other brain boosters for studying. Any connection there are you and your colleagues seeing between drug use and possible depression or anxiety and even suicidal ideation? Yeah, so they do run it hand in hand, and we do ask students about their alcohol and drug use. Um, And uh, in terms of the correlation, uh, we certainly do see a correlation between alcohol and drug use and presenting mental health concerns. How about antidepressants? There's a lot of research on the effects of how antidepressants affect developing brains. I think you can, no matter, depending on where you stand, you can look at evidence uh, pro and con. Absolutely. I was looking at the data from the Center for Collegiate Mental Health earlier, and we asked students when they come for counseling, you know, do you feel like drug and alcohol is a problem for you? And the numbers have mostly hovered pretty similarly and in some ways have fallen across the last few years. Um, So we asked students questions like, have you ever felt the need to reduce your alcohol or drug use? And it's hovered in sort of the low 20 percent. It peaked about four years ago and has fallen a couple percent in the last couple of years. And so that indicates to me that we are seeing campuses, and the University of Iowa is no exception, doing a lot of proactive work on their campuses to reduce um, drug and alcohol binge as well as um, uh, prescription medication binging. Mm -hmm. How about the number of students who are seeking help? Does that increase in students seeking help tell us positive signs, students feel empowered to get the help that they need, or does this just point back to an increase in mental health issues on college campuses? I'm glad you asked that question because often stories are really turned only towards, you know, the problems of this generation of students. And some of the things that we also know about this generation of students is, A, they're very civically minded, they're very civically engaged, um, which is a critical strength this generation. But they also, again, have, they, they seek mental health services. They don't have the stigma. And again, stigma is not one size fits all for every community. But they overall will seek mental health services in numbers that we've never seen them use before. Um, in surveying our, um, our counseling centers, over half the students that are seeking counseling at a college have had counseling prior to coming to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they will have a history of that. The other thing we know is on average, when a student comes for counseling, they're only going to come between four and five times for individual counseling, and then they're done. Is that enough? Uh, for a majority of students, it is. The, the, the number one number of sessions that students use when they come to a counseling center, the, the, the number one is, is one session. Mm. So the far majority of students are going to come to the counseling center once. Mm. And so when we see high-level usage, we know for a fact, looking at data, that about 20% of the students use about 50% of the service. 
We have to wrap in just a moment, but wondering if colleges and universities are able to keep up with this increased demand for counseling services. It tends to feel a little bottomless. Mm. Um, And so you mentioned, which I think is a really nice mention, is that campuses are doing a lot of great work in basically helping the whole community respond so that the counseling center is not the hammer for every mental health nail. Um, And so this can then turn into things like giant campus-wide mental health fairs so that we're creating awareness, training staff and faculty so they can be first-line responders when they see students in distress because students often only want to talk to the people they know. And so helping staff, faculty, fellow students, RAs, um, be responsive to students when they see distress and act as preventively as possible so we can keep mental health concerns at the lowest rates we can. That was Barry Schreier, director of the University Counseling Service at the University of Iowa. He's also communications committee chair at the Association of University and College Counseling Center Directors. Barry, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for the call. You are always invited to be a part of the conversation on On Second Thought. We have a Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk, or you can email us. We're at onsecondthought at gpb.org. You can also leave a message at 404-500-9457. You heard music today by RJD2. And as we head into the break, we're listening to Nostrand by Ratatat. When we come back, Dr. Joy Harden, host of the podcast Therapy for Black Girls, talks about access, acceptance, and providing support without the couch. That's when On Second Thought returns. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us. Georgia Public Broadcasting. This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. African Americans are 10% more likely to report experiencing serious mental health problems than their white counterparts. That is according to the Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health. But even when they seek professional help, they may not find caregivers who look like them or who share their experiences. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast aims to remove the stigma from mental health issues, offers resources for black women on topics from anxiety, body image to perfectionism. No matter what you do, a lot of times there is another expectation, right? So you go to school and you get all these degrees and then the questions are, well, when are you going to be married? And, you know, so I mean, so it, it feels like every time you hit one of these markers, then there is another marker that people expect you to, to, to meet. Dr. Joy Bradford is host of the podcast. Joy, welcome. Thank you so much. Well, you worked as a college counselor. You have your own psychology practice here in Atlanta. You started this blog called Therapy for Black Girls back in 2014. Why did you start addressing these topics online rather than in the clinical setting? Well, I've always been doing both. Um, So in my experience on college campuses, it seemed like a lot of the black women students were not necessarily coming into the counseling center. So it felt important for me to go out to where they were to have these conversations about addressing their mental health. And so in having those conversations, it felt like there were certain themes that were coming up. So I thought, 
having a blog to talk about these things for women beyond the campus I was on would be a really good idea. So what kind of responses were you getting? The the responses from the very beginning have been incredibly positive and exciting. Um, So when I would mention to people the name of the blog, there would be lots of, ooh, and yes, kind of thing. So it it definitely seemed like information that people were ready and willing to um, accept. So then you decide to start this podcast. Any models that you were looking at for podcasts about mental health for what worked or what to avoid? Not necessarily, but I was already listening to tons of other podcasts about things not mental health related, so lots of like comedy podcasts and pop culture podcasts, and I fell in love with the medium, and so I thought it would be a great way, a great addition to add to Therapy for Black Girls in a way that different kinds of people could get the information, and it has kind of taken off from there. Well, we're going to bring you back to that very first episode. Here's a clip. I want sisters to realize that mental health is not just developing strategies to manage panic attacks. It's also about how we can be more assertive, how we can set firmer boundaries, and how we can learn to listen to that little voice inside of us that tells us when something is wrong. So you're not just responding in a kind of triage way. You're kind of helping to build a foundation for mental health. What was the decision that you made for that approach? Yeah, I think that that has been foundational to my training. So my training is as a counseling psychologist. And in counseling psychology, there is a large focus on prevention and all of the kinds of things that you can do to prevent having a mental health crisis. And so much of my work has been uh, surrounding prevention kinds of things and helping you make healthy decisions along the way so that you don't necessarily get to the crisis level. But that's all based on the therapeutic relationship, a very one-on-one relationship. And you say at the beginning of each episode, this podcast is not a substitute for a relationship with a therapist. So how is it different handling this private practice face-to-face or maybe even a phone or Skype and this one-to-many where you're speaking to so many? (laughs) Yeah, it has been a very different experience, but one that I found that I really love. Um, so even in my my history of working on college campuses, the things that I love most were outreach presentations where I would be able to meet with a group of, of people about a certain topic. And so this kind of feels like an extension of that. Um, and the disclaimer, of course, is necessary because I am licensed. So, you know, people listen to the podcast and they do feel like they have like a relationship with me in their heads, but I need to make sure they understand I'm not actually their therapist, you know, in course, of course, to protect my license and liability issues and stuff. Um, But it is great when I get emails from people that say they listen to a podcast episode and now they're considering going to therapy Hmm. or that they found a therapist in the directory and they love working with them. So I'm always heartened by those emails from people who are getting positive changes in their lives because of the podcast. Yeah, I noticed that on your website uh, uh, accompanying the podcast, there is a list of therapists. So what's your criteria? How do you find those people? It is a self-selection, so people can go on and add their listing. Um, And so most of the therapists in the directory are black women across the country, Um, and there are over 1,200 therapists in the country right now. Um, So I'm very excited by the way that that list has also grown. Well, your episodes range from bipolar disorder to allowing vulnerability, I think is the most recent one, toxic masculinity, surviving Valentine's Day. So some things that are mental health concerns that keep going and going, but then others that are mere maybe more topical. How how do you decide what to focus on in each episode? 
So I am in constant conversation with my community, so I'm always soliciting their feedback about what kinds of things they want to hear, so I keep a running list of topics, but I also am a huge like pop culture, TV, movie kind of person, and so anytime I watch something or hear something that I feel like has a mental health slant or can give a message to my community about how they can take better care of themselves, then I also will develop a, a podcast episode around that. So with your engagement and dialogue with your listeners, do, do certain subjects seem to come up over and over again? Yeah, absolutely. So the bipolar episode was one that was heavily requested. Um, mm. So sometimes, you know, when people get a new diagnosis, there's lots of like, oh my goodness, what does this mean? Um, and so some of those topics have been very highly requested for people wanting to kind of make sense of what the diagnosis means and how do they then move forward with their lives. So what you, you normally, I've listened to a couple of episodes and you normally talk with another therapist or an expert um, it's very conversational. It's very, um, you know, it, it, nobody's wagging a finger <laughs> right. at anybody here. So yeah. it, how has that evolved? Yeah, that was always very intentional um, because, you know, it is a podcast that is for just the regular people, right? Like it's not necessarily a podcast aimed at other therapists, though I am joined by other therapists a lot. I wanted it to be very conversational. Like the whole goal of therapy for black girls is to make the information relevant and accessible. And so when I am prepping guests for the podcast, I encourage them, you know, don't use a whole bunch of jargon, you know, talk to people as if you are explaining this to somebody who's young without using, you know, all of these words that we learn in training. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really wanted to be about you know, getting good information from reputable therapists, but also like allowing all these other therapists to show that we have different kinds of personality. So the purpose of that is to let people see like all therapists are different. And so you may not connect with me, but you may connect with somebody who was on episode 54. Um, and, you know, so, so you can tell that there are different kinds of people who are going to be a different fit for you and that it's okay to, to find the person who feels like the best fit for you. Well, and I imagine you, you, you've tapped into this population that really wants to talk about this stuff. Any listener responses come up for you to episodes that, you know, the personal story, maybe something that you weren't expected that really connected to the subject matter? Hmm, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but the most frequent responses that I get are that listening to an episode really helped them understand something better about mm -hmm. themselves mm -hmm. or that they didn't even realize that that was something you could talk to a therapist about, which, again, is the goal that you don't have to just talk to a therapist when you're in crisis. You can also talk with a therapist about all of these improvements that you would like to make in your lives. And that's why the resources are there. Now, you've talked about uh, starting this in college populations, and I know millennials are a big part of the target audience here, at least from the subject matter and from the look mm -hmm. of the responses. And you've done a number of episodes on anxiety but in polls showing this is an increasing problem in American mm -hmm. culture. What, what are you hearing? What are people worried about? What do they feel anxious about? A little bit of everything, honestly. Um, you know, and I think a large part of that is um, because we are so connected by social media. So we get all these alerts about breaking news and, you know, there's some new catastrophe in, in a part of the country or something is going on. And so I think people are just at a heightened state of arousal right now, um, which means that they may be struggling with anxiety. So I think um, there's a lot of, of anxiety about like politics, about school shootings, about, um, you know, just different kinds of things. And people are really struggling with like how to make sense of all of that. We're speaking with the Atlanta psychologist, Dr. Joy Bradford. She's host of the podcast Therapy for Black Girls, which takes on a big stigma and increasingly 
younger generations, I think, understand that seeing a counselor when coping with life issues is like you know going to a dentist for a toothache. But this form of care still has a great stigma, especially in older generations, and especially in the African-American community. Seeing a lot of data on uh, African-Americans not as likely to seek therapy as their white counterparts. What do you think is at the root of that? I think historically there has been a large feeling of what goes on in your house stays in your house. Mm. Um, So, of course, if you're not going to talk to the general public about whatever is happening, you would not go to a stranger and tell them your very personal information. So I think a lot of us have been raised to feel that way. But I also think that a large part of it comes related to the Black community's relationship to church and spirituality um, and seeing and, and sometimes believing that if you are struggling with a mental health issue, that it means that you have a weak, a weak faith relationship, which, of course, is not the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm very encouraged to see more churches and faith organizations talking about mental health topics and talking about the fact that you can pray and see a therapist. Um, so I think that those are some of the issues that have led to there being an increased stigma in the community. Do you think there's a perception that therapy is a white people thing? Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people still feel that way. I think that that is changing, though, again, like you mentioned, with the younger generations. Um, You know, a lot of people are talking about their experiences with therapy who are not white people. Um, So I think that every time somebody shares their experiences with therapy, then it makes it okay for somebody else to see therapy, for people to see like, oh, this is not only a certain type of person who can go and talk with a therapist. Back in 2013, the American Psychology Association reported that white counselors make up about 80% of the psychology workforce. So this is in comparison to 5% of African-American counselors. Have have you had conversations with your colleagues in the field about these stats and, and maybe some reasons for those numbers? Yeah, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. So, you know, one, there is a lot of training that goes on before you can become a therapist. Um, So you do, of course, four years of undergrad and then at least two years of a master's program and then sometimes maybe two to three years of additional supervision before you can even practice independently. Um, and so I think for a lot of people that can be a hurdle because, you know, your your income may not look like the level of training that you have. So for some people, it would be like, okay, I'm going to find something where I can make, you know, independent money much quicker than having to do almost 10 years of, you know, kind of supervised, supervised training. Um, and I also think that a lot of graduate programs are not particularly friendly and welcoming for people of color. Um, you know, so grad school is already stressful, but if you add on top of that, racist microaggressions that make it more difficult for you to complete your program, then for a lot of people, they will just choose something else. Given that the majority of counselors currently are white, have you had conversations with white counselors or or psychiatrists or psychologists or social workers about how to be more welcoming and maybe accommodating to people of color? Yeah, I have had conversations, and there are also other colleagues who are doing incredible work around helping white therapists to really get in touch with their biases and what that may look like in the therapy room and how they can, you know, prevent themselves from 
per- perpetuating any of these microaggressions against people of color. Um, so I think it's upon it's a, a incumbent upon white therapists though to make sure that they are doing their work. Um, you know, I think a lot of times you know people don't necessarily want to have a conversation around white privilege or how that might look in the therapy room, but it's important that you do. I mean, when you hear these numbers about eighty percent of them not being you know non-white people, then you really need to make sure that you are doing your work so that people of color and black pe- black people in particular are not having traumatic experiences in the therapy office. How about black women in particular? This is your target audience that you're speaking Mm -hmm. to. Why do you think, um, you know, we heard a little clip earlier that uh, a woman that you were speaking to, I'm not sure if she was a therapist or not, but said, you know, like we we have this idea that we're not strong if we ask for help. Why do you Mm -hmm. think it's particular for black women? Yeah, that has been a, a very long-held stereotype in the Black community. Um, and, and again, I think most stereotypes start from a place of where it kind of makes sense and then it doesn't anymore. Um, you know, so if we just kind of go back through generations when we talk about people who were enslaved um, and families being separated, like lots of women had to kind of make sure they were taking care of the household. And so I think some of that has kind of just trickled down to black women being seen as infallible and that we can never make mistakes and we always have to kind of be on point. But the amount of pressure that that adds to us and the increased anxiety and stress is just not, you can't keep up at that pace. And so I think continuing to have conversations around the fact that we are human, we're not superhuman. I mean, there's a whole, you know, term around black girl magic and what all of that means. And as incredible and wonderful as we are, we also need to be making sure that we are allowing ourselves to be human and to understand that we don't always have to be on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so how does somebody, you know, if you have a woman come into your office, she's never been there before, Uh, She's never been in therapy before. How do you begin to kind of break down that idea that, you know, it doesn't mean you don't have magic if you're not, Mm -hmm. if you're here? Yeah, that's a great question. So I do a lot around like educating what the therapy process is, um, because I think for anybody who's never been to a therapist's office, it can feel very intimidating and you don't know what happens behind these closed doors. And so I think it's really important to do a lot of education about what the process looks like, um, what are the confines of confidentiality, um, letting them know that it's not typically a very quick fix. Um, You know, so I do understand that you may be struggling with something in particular, but it may even feel worse before it feels better. So really doing a lot of prep work to help them understand the process so that they feel more understanding and welcome in the space. Mm -hmm. How do you think race bias plays into therapy sessions? You know, somebody who comes in uh, and, and they may feel like they're immediately not understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I have heard those sentiments from lots of different women who have tried to, to go to therapy. Um, and it is very unfortunate because then it becomes more difficult for them to try a new therapist um, because who wants to kind of keep telling that story? But I think it has come out in the ways of people not necessarily being believed or asking lots of follow-up questions that make you feel like you're under a microscope as opposed to this person is really just trying to hear my story. So I think that, again, as therapists, we do need to be aware of, you know, like what kinds of biases we have that may inform the questions that we're asking and the different kinds of diagnostic diagnostic impressions that we may even be having. That's Dr. Joy Bradford, an Atlanta psychologist and host of the podcast Therapy for Black Girls. And we heard music today by Earl Sweatshirt. Stay with us for the story of slave, fugitive, hero, and spy. Harriet Tubman's life is the focus of a new book, a novel. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Last week, members of Congress tried to revive an Obama-era effort to make Harriet Tubman the new face of the $20 bill. A new historical novel about Tubman gives us a whole other face and consideration of the woman known as the Moses of her people. Tubman, who escaped slavery and established an underground railroad network to free others, may also have been Harriet the Spy. Historian and best-selling author Elizabeth Cobbs dives into Tubman's involvement as a nurse and scout serving the Union Army during a critical point of the Civil War. The Tubman Command is a novel imagining Tubman's role as the first African-American woman to serve in the military. And Elizabeth Cobbs is going to be discussing the book at the DeKalb Historical Society this Wednesday. Elizabeth Cobbs, welcome. Thank you so much, Virginia. Harriet Tubman, definitely one of those giant figures whose story bears repeating over and over. So briefly, can you tell us what we know of her early life and escape from a Maryland plantation? Yes. Well, she was a young woman. She was 27. She was married, which I think a lot of uh, people don't realize. Um, And she wanted her husband to go with her, and he would not. He was actually a free man. And so it's it's, it's one of these, as love is always complicated, right? She wants him to go, but he doesn't want to leave everything he knows. And so she escapes by herself and on her own. And she gets to freedom, and she's 27, it's 1849, you know, long before anybody knows there will be a civil war that slavery will ever end. You know, and there's no knowledge of that. And, um, and she gets to freedom, and she sort of looks at herself and looks at her hands and thinks, you know, how can I, what is it like to be free and have no one you love with you? And to know that everyone you love, especially her, her biological family, her brothers and sisters and mother and father, are trapped. You know, they're behind, they're in chains um, just, you know, 100 miles away or whatever. And so she decides to go back. And that's what leads Harriet Tubman to become such a famous figure. She goes back. We don't know exactly how many times because every time it was a crime. You know, she could have been thrown into jail. She could have been imprisoned for life. She could sold back into slavery, placed back into slavery, I should say. But she, she's the only person we know of in American history, who went back so many times as she did, who freed so many people and was never captured. There's some people who had gone back several times but were ultimately captured. So she's the only person who does this and who gets away. So she's a consummate escape artist. Mm. Um, and she sets up, as you just said, this network. Um, she works with others who are in the part of this larger effort of the Underground Railroad. But she essentially gets people from Maryland, which is the area she knows best and knows like the back of her hand over time, and smuggles them out again and again and again to Canada and New York. But then the crazy thing here is, you know, a lot of abolitionists, once the war breaks out, you know, they do what sensible people do. They let the armies do what armies do, which is to fight it out. But Harriet Tubman goes back. But now she has left, and in, in the book opens, it's May of 1863. She's in South Carolina, low country. How did she get there? Well, she goes there in 1862, and then in 1863, she's planning this raid. And you know what? So this is interesting. She's sent. She's sent by the governor of Massachusetts, who writes, you know, on her behalf and basically says the government needs to pay for this woman's travel down to South Carolina. And he recommends her to the the man who is the general of the occupied sea islands of of, uh, South Carolina. 
So these are all occupied or, you know, the ones that the union is in control of. Um, David Hunter is the commander of those. And she's recommended to Hunter as a valuable woman. Now, Virginia, I know about you, but I've never been recommended as a governor of anything as a valuable woman, you know, who who needs to be listened to. (laughs) Not yet. Okay. Well, that's true. Um, So she goes and, and she's there for a bit over a year before we believe she was, you know, placed in charge of planning this raid or initiated the raid. Uh, and in fact, the word initiated is um, is the term that's used by a reporter at the time who, who looks upon the events. This is a crucial point in the war. Give us a sense of what's going on strategically in the battle uh, between the North and the South. Why this location, the South Carolina Sea Islands, considered critical to the Union? Yeah, today we would think of this perhaps as a backwater, a quiet, quiet spot. But at the time, uh, you know, no one thought the North was going to win. Even Northerners, most Northerners did not think the North would win. Keep in mind, uh, Virginia, that the South is bigger than all of Europe. Hmm. So consider that. You know, how is how is a country going to keep another hypothetical country, all the size of Europe, you know, in its grasp. And so the one of the key things they have to do is to blockade the Confederacy to the extent possible because, you know, countries in Europe think this is not going to work out. They're supplying both sides. And so blockade runners are trying to supply the South with uniforms and, you know, guns and gunpowder and all the things that the South has in such limited supply and can't mostly produce for itself. And so they have to have the, a base for that navy, and it's struggling. Oh my gosh! So this is the this is the deepest pit, you might say, of the Civil War. You know, hundreds of thousands have already died. There's no end in sight. So this is before Vicksburg and Gettysburg, which some listeners will know is the big are the big turning points in the war. Um, and so it looks like the North is going to lose. And it's at this point that Harriet Tubman begins to plan a raid a daring raid, an unheard of kind of expedition by black soldiers. Um, Ultimately, there will be two American gunships that she helps to lead up the Cumbie River, 25 miles into what was then known as enemy territory, if you were a Union officer. Well, you mentioned that she was described by the governor as a valuable woman. But th- let's think, you know, you describe her as a five foot slender woman, disabled. She did receive a terrible head injury where she was beaten uh, as a child that forever affected her. She's often photographed, extremely recognizable, $12,000 bounty on her head. Why would she be a good candidate for a spy to lead a, or a scout to lead a mission like this? You know, for the very reasons you said, she's five foot tall. She's a tiny little thing, like a strong wind might blow her away. And she looks kind of like nobody, but she must have had one of these faces that's very changeable. She was described, by the way, as good looking, fine looking, I should say, on her um, runaway notice, which meant that she was a pretty woman. Uh, And perhaps when she smiled, she was particularly so. But she was also very good at disguise. And I think that people tend to think, you know, a small woman, what's that? You know, she's nothing, uh, whatever. Um, And she she was able to get in and out of places that someone else would have been, you know, stopped and accosted and sort of, you know, in some way checked. Um, and keep in mind, we know her photographs. We know what she looks like. But she she wasn't photographed at the time. The photograph we now have has only been recently discovered of her when she was about right after the Civil War, so around the age that she was in the in the time of the novel. And um, and so her face wasn't known. And keep in mind, yes, you're right. She went by the code name we might say Moses. 
So it wasn't known. Some people might have thought she was a man. Well, you have written several historical books and another historical novel, The Hamilton Affair, about Alexander Hamilton and his uh, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton. So this is a novel, right? What What is the true historical record here? And why are you writing it as a novel? What does that allow you to do? Yeah, that's it's such a fabulous question. I, you know, I, I have eight books. This is my eighth book, and five of them are nonfiction. So I mostly have written in nonfiction, as most professional historians do. Um, but I wanted, in the case of actually both Alexander Hamilton, and by the way, I, I always am conscious that people are going to think, this must have been some cheesy ripoff of Lin-Manuel Miranda. But I actually wrote the novel. You were there first. <laughs> I was there first. But then my novel came out just as he was collecting all the Tony Awards. So I was very happy about the timing. Probably didn't um, hurt. <laughs> it did not hurt, right. Um, as as you said, it was a bestseller. So I was very grateful to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Thank you, sir. Uh, but I feel that with history... Historians can tell us uh, exactly what the facts are, and historians are not allowed and should never, by our professional standards, make up a single thing. We can't invent a cloud in the sky or, or certainly anything anybody says because dialogue is unrecorded in history. Nobody sits around recording our dialogue. We might have a letter, but we don't know what people said or what they felt on a different on a particular day. But especially in, in relation to um, important people in history about whom we don't have a lot – uh, of a lot of facts, it's kind of what what the fiction allows us to do is to sort of imagine the the plausible scenarios in between the app the known facts. I like to say that fiction lights the dark corners of the evidence. Mm. And in relation to women, um, this is particularly helpful because most women's lives are very lightly documented. And so what we know about someone like Harriet Tubman is from other people um, who observed her. She was illiterate, so she never wrote her own. She did not write um, her own memoirs. She had commissioned somebody to do that. But we we don't hear about her in her own voice. Mm. And so if we want to try to think about what Harriet Tubman sounded like. If we want to, you know, walk in her shoes, then this is something that fiction allows us to do. And I'm very conscious as a historian of making sure that it's done in ways that are absolutely consistent with every known fact. What is known about the Cumbie Raid, uh, we have, by the way, one paragraph on it from its commander, <laughs> who wrote one paragraph to his commanding officer saying, basically, sir, it went well. Mm. We captured, um, pardon me, we freed 756 enslaved people. You know, we burned Confederate plantations, et cetera. Um, and so that's what we know. And he said, I'll write you more later, which he never did, because it was wartime. It was the middle of the Civil War. So um, they scout up this river that, by the way, is not only defended by artillery and by uh, sentinels, you know, rifle riflemen lining in different spots along the banks, but there are also underwater mines. And so this is one of the ways that the South very successfully, you know, the Confederate South, I should say, because I think when we say the South, you know, we tend to think we're talking about the white South. But, you know, there's the other half of the South, which is the South. And uh, and there are the folks who are being kept in um, kept in slavery. So, you know, one half of the South is armed and they're pointing their guns not only at the North, but the, at their own population, tragically. So, um, you know, they're trying to get up this river, and, uh, and that's what the book is about is, you know, how do they do it? And I think that fiction kind of allows us to walk through and see how it could have happened exactly. 
My guest is historian and author Elizabeth Cobbs. Her latest novel, The Tubman Command, comes out tomorrow. She's going to be speaking about it at the DeKalb Historical Society Indicator on Wednesday. Well, I want to pick up on that idea of she thinks at one point to herself in the novel, no one thinks anyone called Moses has a personal life, right? So you are rounding out the character. She's got a history. She has a husband that she left behind. Um, There are plenty of quotes about her. But we don't know how she thinks about her own life. And you write at one point, Harriet Tubman's idea of marriage came from Mama, who thought that that's how matrimony worked. You know, if she was a good wife and Daddy was a strong man, they would be together forever. But Harriet knew that marriage was like a bizarre children's game. Uh, Why? Why did you want to start at this point of of? telling a story about the complications of her own romantic unions. Well, I wanted to understand better and portray what motivated Harriet Tubman. Mm. You know, we think of someone, well, they're just born a hero, right? Okay, great. They're born a hero. I wasn't good. I don't have to, I don't have to act heroically in my own life, right? Um, but what motivates someone who, who chooses again and again to do these heroic things and, and I thought, you know, one way to do that is to, you know, walk and try to walk into her own heart. And I think partly it's like, in a way, we don't want our women leaders to have personal lives hmm. because that disqualifies them as leaders. It's sort of like men can have these family things on the side and, you know, that's not, that's not really in the way of what they're going to do in life. And for women, you know, we sort of strip out those parts of the story. If we think a woman is heroic, then we want them to be the virginal Joan of Arc. <laughs> it's okay. She's burned to the stake. Hey, she does good stuff. <laughs> um, but with Harriet Tubman, I mean, here's a woman who, you know, who was married twice, both times to men um, who apparently found her absolutely irresistible. Uh, her first husband, as I mentioned, was a free man, and he lived in a part of the South, the Upper South, where half of the African-American population was free and half was enslaved. Talk about complicated lives. And so he could have, you know, found another woman to marry, but apparently he decided to marry a woman who was so in love with her that he was willing to court and marry a woman who, by whom he would have slave children, and they wouldn't belong to him. Uh, so that what a tremendous sacrifice that would be for any man to make. And then she left him because <laughs> she wanted freedom. So that's kind of where the novel starts is how she feels about having left him and then knowing that after she leaves, he takes another wife. And she is praised by those who are her commanders or who work with her. There's a quote in the book from Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson talking about what was at risk for her in this mission. But, you know, she was also she was serving as the first African-American woman we know of. Is that correct in in the military service? Yes. um, You know, I think that there are some evidence that uh, there were, you know, and of course there were women who had various, you know, roles. Nurses or cooks or Nurses. In fact, uh, there was one of the, a woman there who was a black nurse who was served with the first South Carolina. But, you know, we think for sure she would have been absolutely the first black woman ever in command. Uh, as she was. And in fact, she petitioned after her service, her military service, for a military pension. 
and she detailed her service and uh, the men over whom she had command. She listed them by name. By the way, so curious fact here, um, one of the men she lists by name, and there's no indication she ever stayed in touch with him, and there's just a list of people she commanded. He later petitioned after the war of the U.S. Congress and was granted a petition as a scout. Hmm. Now, by the way, he got his his scout um, uh, scout pension about two or three years after the war was over. Harriet Tubman petitioned 30 years, Hmm. 30 years, supported by congressmen, supported by American generals, supported by... Uh, American colonels, uh, and of course supported by the abolitionist community for her um, pension. She was finally granted it after 30 years and in the category of nurse, which was about less than half of the pension pay of a scout. So not as a scout. Well, Elizabeth Cobbs, I'm sorry to let you go, but we have to close. And I'm thinking there are so many books written about this tiny, fierce, remarkable woman. But telling this story as a novel and giving her... I don't know. In the popular imagination, uh, it's enough to be an abolitionist hero, right? But a spy, you know, a scout, somebody who did this furtive mission gives it a whole different luster. And and I'm wondering if you can reach different audiences than you might with a nonfiction historical tome. Absolutely. No, I mean, I want people who go to the beach. <laughs> I want read people about who are you know, sitting in their bathtubs, right, who are reading, a, you know, can't stop reading and you know, can't turn out the light at night and have to keep going. I think fiction reaches a different part of our brains and a different part of our hearts. I want the world to know why Harriet Tubman should be on the $20 bill. She's our most outstanding female patriot in American history. Historian and author Elizabeth Cobbs, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Elizabeth's latest novel, The Tubman Command, comes out tomorrow, and she's going to be speaking at the DeKalb Historical Society Indicator on Wednesday. There are details at our website, gbbnews.org. 